real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Rome is with you. We are coming up to Remembrance Day, and I've got a number of guests lined up to talk about service and sacrifice. We are going to talk about their experiences in training and deployments, the memories, the people, and the impacts of service. To help me, I have co-host John Simpson here. John is a U.S. Army veteran with over 40 years of practical experience. He is an instructor with Snipercraft Incorporated and a research historian who has authored several books on the fundamentals and advanced tactics of marksmanship and sniper skills. Always get all those big words mixed up. (laughs) Also, John was previously on this podcast in season two, episodes 23 and 45. So go check those out to get his story. And our guest today is Sergeant Ed Eaton. Ed descends from a family who served in the U.S. Marine Corps. He joined the National Guard in 1965 while he was still in high school. Then he moved on to the U.S. Army, where he trained as a radio operator and later a sniper. In 68, Ed deployed to Vietnam and joined the 9th Infantry River Raiders. He left Vietnam with three Purple Hearts, three Bronze Stars with Valor devices, and a number of Army Commendation Medals. And that's some of the stuff we're going to get into today. Uh, Ed's story has also been featured on several shows and podcasts. He has been recommended for the Medal of Honor and has been inducted into the Army Sniper Hall of Fame. Since retirement, Ed has become an author and artist. Ed's autobiography, if you want to pick one up, is called The Mekong Mud Dogs, the story of Sergeant Ed Eaton. So welcome, John and Ed. Honored to be here. Good morning, and a big shout out to my Canadian brothers. <laughs> Glad to have you both on here. Um, yeah, this is, uh, well, for John and I, this is one of the last recordings uh, to kind of wrap up this series. So it's, uh, I'll say it's been a pleasure having him on right to, uh, off the bat here. And uh, I'm glad we could get Ed in because we didn't know if we were going to fit everybody in, but um, we managed to make the schedule work. So thank you, Ed, for uh, being flexible with the dates and times and, and uh, you know, taking some time out of your day to come talk with us. My pleasure. So maybe we'll kind of start at the beginning uh, with you, Ed, and we'll walk through a little bit of your life. So if you could tell us about where you're from growing up and uh, kind of your path to service. Well, I was uh, raised in the Pacific Northwest, uh, mainly Northeast uh, Oregon, Southeast uh, Washington. And uh, my family on my father's side were, they were mountain people. Uh, They had the, uh, a small ranch, small farm up in the mountains. And uh, my father joined the Marine Corps uh, shortly after Pearl Harbor. Uh, so as a child, I, I recall living on Camp Pendleton. So I was a little familiar with uh, military life. But uh, uh, Vietnam, of course, uh, came around and, and that changed everything for me. Uh, I actually joined the National Guards in, in high school. More as a uh, a bet with some friends, uh, four of us joined the same day. And, uh, 
really wasn't familiar with all that familiar with Vietnam at that time. But as it uh, popped up and as the whole uh, thing grew over there, kids started talking about this, that. There started to be people against the people for, and I, I really felt like I needed to uh, get over there and see what's going on before I had anything really to say about it. How old were you at the time when you joined the army? So you, you were in the guard in 65 and that was high school. 68, you're deploying to Vietnam. So Yeah, I was actually 17, had to have my, my parents' signatures. <laughs> wow. And I went active duty at age went active duty at age uh, 19. Wow. And in contrast to today, <laughs> seeing what some people are doing at 19. So um, if we could go back a little bit and just talk about your, you said your dad joined just uh, the Marine Corps shortly after Pearl Harbor. Um, do you have a family lineage through the Marine Corps? From what I understand, did anybody kind of push you in this direction? Like, hey, you should look at joining or was there kind of no pressure at all? Or did they try to talk you out of it? Well, I had pressure to, to go into the Marine Corps, but uh, I really wanted to be a medic. And, um, my father uh, had taught me to dislike the Navy uniform. <laughs> so so I, uh, learning to be a medic, I, uh, I joined the Army thinking that uh, they surely would pick up on me, but uh, they had different ideas as to uh, what MOS I should have. Right, just, and just for the benefit of the listeners, um, if you want to be a medic in the Marine Corps, basically medics in the Marine Corps are Navy corpsmen. So that's why that's why Ed couldn't be a Marine and a medic at the same time. Okay. At any rate, I found myself uh, in infantry training, and uh, and I at that point I just thought, well, let's just let's just get it over with. So uh, away I went. So can you talk a bit about the uh, uh, recruiting and and just you know the initial steps when you're thinking about going into this? It sounds like you're pretty dead set on going that direction so it wasn't a hard choice um when you go through recruiting what does that kind of look like in the mid to late 60s well there's no recruiting in my instance uh i just went right through uh, uh actually i uh, was in the guards then i went into the reserves um mm. and i just uh, went to my seal and said hey i want to go active duty that's how that worked out so oh uh, okay there's I didn't deal with recruiter at all. And from there, so you just go in, uh, they send you right off to kind of your basic training and that's where it all starts? That's correct. So what is, uh, where do you go for that? Uh, I, I have my basic training and my infantry training both uh, in Fort Lewis, so I didn't have to travel far. And what does training look like uh, when you're, when you first start out? You know, I think it's, it's, it's really is your basic training. The Army's trying to teach you how to act and march and how to stand and shut up and, <laughs> you know, it goes on and on. And then infantry training is really where uh, it, it, they get serious with you. And uh, thank God I was in what was called, anyhow, the old style of training, one of the last, um, uh, how should I say, old style infantry training, basic training units in the nation from what I understand. But, uh, um, yeah, I just thought all the basics, uh, right. You know, it was marksmanship, uh, you know, 
throw all the crap you can on your back and, and march 26 miles, you know, things along those lines. So yeah, a lot of it was, uh, was teaching, uh, oh, one, how to, uh, you know, the camaraderie if you will. Uh, but the, at any rate, I felt pretty comfortable with what I had been taught. Um, uh, and, uh, I had a little bit of an advantage in that, I had been sleeping on the ground on again, off again, ever since I joined the Boy Scouts. So a lot of the the infantry stuff was wasn't all that new to me compared to a uh, let's say somebody from the big city. Mm-hmm. They had a little difficult, more more of a difficult time on relating to all that. Hey Ed, in regards to the infantry training, um, I wanted to explore something that you said where it was like you were you're like one of the talking about the old style versus the new style and you were like right there at the transition i mean what was your what's your what's your understanding of the the biggest differences between the 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 way that you went through infantry training and then what followed so what what was what was the difference between old style and new style to you well you know I, yeah, you don't really realize it at the time but when you're later on and speaking with friends that that went through, uh, you know, a different system and a different, uh, a different, uh, force. Um, you realize that things were different. For example, we weren't allowed to go anywhere, period, uh, outside of formation. If you're in formation and you had your drill instructor with you, that's where you went. But, but you had no, you could not leave your company area, period. You couldn't go to a PX. It had to be done for you. Uh, I think it was a little, it was a little, little tougher grind. Uh, the, um, the, it, it just, it just seemed to be, you know, a little, little nastier, <laughs> if yeah. you will. The drill sergeants, drill sergeants had a little more leeway on how they treated you. Right. Were you going kind of from, was this like a 4 a.m. to 11 p.m.? Like, are your days really long when you're going through this training? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's part of what they teach you how to deal with is sleep deprivation, of course. Yeah. Uh, going to be an infantryman. If you're going to be an infantryman, you better learn how to deal with that. Um, but um, I said it was a little, little bit easier for me. Uh, I was an athlete. Uh, I had played uh, six years of football. Uh, I was an avid hunter. Um, I didn't have any problem putting on some mileage uh, on my feet. And, and as such, I was made a squad leader, which actually makes it a little tougher because they would use you to demonstrate the next exercise or whatever it was, and then you'd have to go through it for a score. But, so sometimes you had to do things twice and everybody else had to do it once. You sound like a person who really thrives uh, in those environments of teamwork and the camaraderie, which seems to be kind of a common theme from all the people I've talked to uh, uh, outside of maybe one of the guests I had who uh, kind of described themselves a, as a bit of a loner, but um, everybody else has been like right. teamwork. They've played some sports growing up. And once they get in, that re- the word camaraderie always comes back. So the interesting theme. Yeah, you know, you go from... You go from whining, you know, how did I end up in the infantry? Everybody else is <laughs> learning how to be a truck driver or a mechanic or whatever. And you, 
So you're, you're at that point and you feel pretty low. Like you, you understand you're about as low as you can go when it comes to being in the army. But once you graduate as an infantryman, that's when the pride starts. You realize, Hey, I've done something you haven't, but I'm on a different level than you are. A hundred percent. It stays that way throughout. The, yeah. 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 Definitely going through the grind and, and being the grunts. Hey, you build a camaraderie that, uh, other places don't have because they don't have those shared experiences and they don't go through the the whole suck <laughs> together. They don't go through the hurt. Yeah. So you're off to training. You're 19. Um, as most of the people that you're going through uh, with, you, are you finding they're coming from similar backgrounds, uh, same age, uh, like they got kind of the same experience or are you getting like just a wide variety of people in there? Yeah, it's pretty much a wide variety of people. Uh... Uh, you know, a few draftees, uh, uh, and we had one unique platoon. It was uh, a judge in Idaho decided to wipe out a boys, a boys' home, or actually, I should say, a, a juvenile detention home. <laughs> he he gave them the option of going in the army and getting an honorable discharge. Oh wow! With an expunged uh, record, or or uh, stay in and go to the big house when they had eighteen. We had an entire platoon of, that already had their own pecking order. And uh, so the Army just doubled up on everything. They just, they, you had two drill sergeants, you had two NCOs helping out. So it was kind of an interesting show to watch all by itself. But do you know what happened with them or how that turned out at all? Yeah, they got dispersed just like the rest of us. Uh, I ran into a few of them in Vietnam, in fact. But uh, yeah, they just, uh, they went on and, uh, you know, some of them got different MOSs. And, and um, from what I could tell, uh, I actually visited one after we were both out. And, and most of those guys did pretty good. It was, a, it was the right thing for the judge to do for them. Oh, good. Yeah, that's a, I mean, hey, that's a unique, a unique solution. <laughs> so I'm all for that. At least somebody's trying something different. As long as it worked out, I mean. Well, that actually used to be a lot more common than you would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, there, yeah, I think you're right, John. Yeah, yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of documented cases where, you know, a judge was telling somebody it's like, well, you know, either, you know, either either prison or the Marine Corps or you know the Army or whatever. Yeah. And, um, yeah, exactly right, and, and but that was that was usually on a, a personal basis, so. I think what was unique about this is there was literally 60 guys from one. <laughs> <laughs> and they definitely had their own packing order and the army had to change that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess you'd have some different dynamics coming in and different ways of operating or going about your business. <laughs> than what? Yeah. Well, you can't have an infantry platoon with a gang initiation. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. You know, and the guys that were, the guys who were head of the pecking order all of a sudden found themselves uh, dealing with their squad leader, somebody of what they considered to be uh, of lesser quality. <laughs> so it was kind of fun to watch. Is that even um, a thing in the army back in that day? Uh, uh, like you hear now that there are gangs, like actual full-on gangs in the in the military. It, was that even a thing back in the sixties? Well, if it was, I I wasn't familiar with it. So, mm-hmm. You know, we were we were being trained. We didn't have no time to be 
be a friggin' gang or anything. So yeah, they kept us busy, too busy for a thought dwelling on the line. Hmm. I I did see some people in the rear in Vietnam gather. Uh, that might have been because of their their job or, or their race or whatever. But uh, other than that, I really didn't see see much of it. Yeah, you. Yeah, back back in that time, from what I understand, from back in that time, you didn't really have a lot of challenges to authority that you see now. Because now it's just like, well, what are you going to do to me? And it's like, back then, like mid to early. I mean, even in the mid to early sixties, you would still have it where the company first sergeant would like bring you into his office, lock the door, and then bounce you off of the walls, and then plug you back into the formation. And all you could do, all you could do was just lump it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely different than nowadays. Wow. <laughs> One of the ways that the drill sergeants would get around some of the physical stuff is, uh, for example, I, my drill sergeant came to me and he, he says, Eaton, when we have formation in the morning, I want to know that that man understood what I said. And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? How how are you going to look at a guy and understand that he understands? <laughs> that finally hit me. He needed a black eye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we had to pull a blanket party on the guy. Yeah, I kind of read between the lines. <laughs> yeah. So you're off at training. And, uh, you know, when, when, how long is it through to get through training? And you started as a radio operator, but then you moved to sniper before you deployed. So sounds like a lot of stuff happened pretty quickly. Is it kind of a quick time frame in there? Actually, I was made a radio operator in Vietnam. I was, I was strictly an infantryman, and mm. we were trained. All of us were trained in radios to an extent. Uh, but once I got into my unit, uh, they made a decision as where I was needed. And in the first spot, they felt I was needed was as a, uh, an RTO for a, a squad leader. And... Uh, so, uh, you know, that's what started that. I, I went through just about every job in the platoon except for one, and that was machine gunner. And there's no way I wanted that damn thing on my back. <laughs> yeah. Then we move into being deployed. Uh, how long of a time frame is it from when you first get into the Army uh, and then you're actually deployed? We're talking like a year? Oh, no, less than that. Uh, in less. my case, it was about nine months, but I had a hernia that needed to be repaired, so that was a whole different story, but I can't remember. John probably has a better idea what uh, what uh, the length of basic training in AIT was back then than I re- recall, even. Yeah, uh, back around that time, well, I mean, you, you know, because things kept on changing, but figure on, it was like eight weeks for basic combat training, and then um, what everybody calls basic and then depending on the year you're looking at like you know seven seven weeks or so of uh infantry training is this just because the war is going on and they just need to pump people out of there like just get them through and get them over there kind of thing yeah yeah pretty much yeah pretty much because it's like there was uh well yeah. uh and then when 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 ed was when when ed was in it's like you didn't have the you didn't have the the personnel crisis that um, that later developed in uh, uh, a, as a result of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So um, 
yeah, that 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 would be that would be like a covering the history of that would be like a show in itself. I mean, they, uh, um, <laughs> I mean, the army, the army wound up having to create a program under Secretary of Defense McNamara where people that were originally judged too low in the mental capacity department were now eligible to uh, serve in the army. Yeah. And we were, yeah, it was like uh, uh, the, the pejorative for them was McNamara's morons. And when I, when I enlisted in the army in 77, NCOs were still talking about the impact, the, the negative impact that they'd had on the army. Wow. So, um, but yeah, so it was, yeah, it was, you know, figure on, you know, eight weeks for basic, you know, seven weeks for infantry. And the thing is, it's like back then, I mean, you got to remember things that at that time, you know, it, we didn't have a lot of the weapons that we have now. We didn't have the communications now, um, you know, and, and it was a learning curve. And the thing is, it's like, you know, it, that one, you know, you have, you have a different kind of basic training for, uh, you know, stuff to cover when you're coming out of a war like the Korean War, World War II, or when you're going into something like Vietnam and they're basically making it up as they go along. Okay. All right. You know, one of the things that surprised me was uh, I recall when we graduated from my infantry training that uh, the average years of schooling for uh, my entire company was right at 14, meaning the average person had two years of college, mm-hmm. which, oh, wow. which was totally, yeah. totally, totally unique, totally unique to compared to some of the past wars where, um, John was saying the guys with, with lower abilities, uh, yeah. were, were stuck in those slots. Not that the army didn't do that to an extent, but, but they realized, I think about that time that the infantrymen had to think about a lot, a lot more things than, uh, um, you know, you, you needed to have your math down if you're going to be calling in artillery. If you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> For Ed, did as you're coming through the training, or even just a bit before that, leading up to it, did you have anybody that you're really looking up to or that kind of was maybe a mentor? Or are you just forging your own path? <laughs> well, in the while I was in, I did with them. Other than your drill sergeant, you know, okay, uh, the son of a bitch that you hate, but at, the, but at the same time, he's the one you want to go to war with. Yeah, but uh, why do you think that is? Like, what? What? Well, I think because you end up appreciating your discipline, you know, and and your training is what it amounts to. You know, you you don't like getting up early in the morning, and you don't like. You know, running two miles before it's even light, even before you get to eat, stuff like that. But uh, and, and along with your PT, but um, yeah, it's just uh, the fact that you end up respecting yourself and and uh, a little more, and at the same time respecting those that have trained you. Yeah, that was kind of a common theme. Like for myself, I haven't been in the army, but I went through uh, depot with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, so it's paramilitary. You live on base mm-hmm. and, and they make you do stuff. It's like you're in bed at 11 p.m. You're up at 4 a.m. every single day. Uh, and yeah, yeah, some of the things that they make you do might seem insane, 
you know, like how the hell is this related to anything? But when you get into like the really bad situations, um, for us in the policing world, right? Like out on the street, you, that's when you really appreciate it. And you're like that one time where it really counts. That's when you're like, wow, I'm glad they, they made me do all these crazy things. Cause I know what this feels like. I also know my limits. So it's, I think it's hard for people to see in the time, but especially when you, you look backward and reflect on it, that's where you really see you're like, Oh wow. Like I'm that, yeah, that, that drill instructor, uh, really kicked my ass, but it's, uh, it was all worth it for this one moment. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing. Uh, you know, I recall one time in, in, in Vietnam, we, we were really hungry. We hadn't had any food for a while. And, and uh, when we finally did get some food, we were in a position where I really needed to keep security. I needed my perimeter to stay strong. So I didn't need people willy-nilly coming over and jumping into the sea ration boxes, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember times when they, their food would be right there, but you're not eating until they say you're eating. Uh, anyhow, just little things like that. Uh, and help. Yeah. If we're, we're kind of moving up to where you're deploying to Vietnam. Can you talk about uh, getting those orders, those deployment orders, and what your thought process is around that time? Like, is it, you know, maybe it's finally hitting you like, wow, we're at, this is real. What have I done? Uh, we're going over there now. <laughs> yeah. What am I doing? Um, <laughs> so can you just talk about getting those orders and, and what deployment looks like, your, your thoughts around it? Well, before we even got the orders, there was an old wives' tale running around that if the Army gave you green underwear, you were going to Vietnam. <laughs> so we had green underwear right off the bat <laughs> in infantry training. <laughs> but then uh, as other units around you uh, graduated and, you know, you would, you would talk to them and they'd say, oh, they'd 99% of them were going to Vietnam, which is exactly what happened to my unit. I think we had 212 of us, and there's 211 got orders for Vietnam. And the only reason that the other one didn't was due to the fact that he uh, had a brother over there. He was an only child, so. Okay. Or the only living, the other, yeah. What about you, your own personal situation? Did you... Like when you get the orders, are you te- what do you tell your parents and, and what are they kind of saying? Well, it wasn't good for my mother. Mm. I tell you, having, having dealt with my father, well, he was, he didn't know him until after World War II. Then he went over to Korea. So she dealt with that also. But um, yeah, I, it, it wasn't really that big of a deal until uh, the airport and just, uh, she couldn't, didn't want to let go of me. She just was in my arms crying and, and would not let me go. Hey, they literally, mm-hmm. you know, they had to come over and tell her, hey, we, we're closing the doors on this airplane. You got to let this guy go. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I imagine that. that's yeah. definitely tough. That's, that, that story played out, I'm sure, thousands of times. But. Mm-hmm. So you go off to... Uh, Vietnam. Now you're over there. Uh, we're in '68, uh, so kind of in the thick of things. Can you tell us about uh, you get over there and do you instantly you go straight to the this River Raiders, or 
do you have anything in between landing and like, do you have any other places that you end up with any other units? Well, interestingly enough, we all had orders for a specific division or specific unit. <laughs> My orders were for the fourth infantry. However, the army put you in a holding depot and, uh, Every morning and afternoon, they would call off your name, and you'd either get on the bus and go somewhere, or you wouldn't. Uh, so I, but the Ninth Infantry Division had just suffered some losses. They needed to refill the ranks, and so that's and that's why I ended up going. Okay. With that unit, can you explain a bit? Well, maybe we'll just get you to explain what exactly you do when you're there, uh, just so listeners kind of have an idea of that. Well, you don't have any idea even then what unit you're going to, i.e. what brigade or what battalion. But so you're holding once again, once once you get to your division's base camp, in my case, Uh it was a place called Dongtan down in Mekong Delta. And uh, pretty soon I found out that I was going to uh, be part of the Mobile River Rainforce and uh, thusly a River Raider. at first, I thought that was a pretty slick idea. I thought that's a pretty slick idea that I might I'd be living on a ship, but uh, reality was that that actually backfired. <laughs> you actually spent you spent more time in the field because of the ship. Um, so. Why is that? Like you just don't want to be on the ship, or it, just because it's constantly going and you have to deploy? Oh no. I, I, it had to do really with the fact that most base camps, let's take your st- your average base camp, let's say a, a battalion size. You're going to have one platoon stay back at all times for a perimeter defense. Okay. And the other three are at one company, and then the other three companies would be out working. So you're going to get a week off basically, uh, you know, every three weeks. Uh, with us, we didn't have anybody protecting the perimeter, so we 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 only came in because we had to get rid of some ringworm and immersion foot. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, be a twelve-hour cycle, and had, uh, you had to wear uh, thongs to make sure your feet got dry. <laughs> mm-hmm. They wouldn't let you wear anything else. So yeah, you you come in and and you get a night, good night's sleep. I'll say that for it, but you spent more time out in the field due to it. So, so Ed, what was the what was the idea behind, or what was the mission of the Riverine Force? Because um, I remember from the book, you guys were like, you, were, you guys were like sleeping on boats, right? If I'm remembering correctly. Well, you slept on a boat, right? Once every once every uh, once every four or five days, you get twelve hours on the boat. Okay, and then so what was? What was the Riverine Force? What was the mission of the Riverine Force? You know, you're talking about, you know, in the field. I mean, what were you, you know, what were you guys doing? I mean, what were what were soldiers doing, hanging out with boats and stuff like that? Yeah, well, you know, it just provided, it gave us the opportunity to get down into really the nastiest part of all of Vietnam. There's no roads down where we were at. We, my battalion didn't even own a jeep. Oh wow! So. Uh, you know, he, that, that was that was the whole idea of being down there. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, our job was the same as any other infantryman. We're hunting, hunting the enemy. You know, just uh, uh, right. day in and day out, just uh, as ruthless as you could be. You know? Now, you uh, uh, at this time was 
was David Hackworth the battalion commander? Correct, he was. Back okay. I was with his battalion for a very short period of time. Okay, but uh, yeah, since you were talking about operating in the Mekong Delta, I just wanted to share with everybody a um, a quote from uh, the late Colonel Hackworth mm -hmm. uh, from his from his memoirs about face to kind of give you an idea of what Ed and his uh, comrades were putting up with. And it, uh, what Hackworth said was, quote, I am convinced that no American soldier has ever suffered more than the infantrymen who fought in the Mekong Delta during the Vietnam War. And that includes those at Valley Forge, the bulge of Christmas 1944, and Korea, the winter of 50. It was a horrible place, end quote. Yeah, well, that it was. <laughs> he wasn't wrong there. Uh, as far as being worse than any other place. Yeah. You were dealing with, you were talking about ringworm, trench foot, you said? Or what was it called? Yeah, yeah, immersion, yeah, immersion, immersion foot. Immersion foot, I think they used to call it. Immersion foot. We also had jungle rot, leeches, and mosquitoes, you know, so. <sighs> Man. It was, uh, it was a fun deal. Yeah, that's one of the things we asked the other guest uh, who'd done a tour there and uh, was the other predators out there. So not just the enemy, the human element, uh, but he was talking a lot about tigers. There was a bunch of stories about Marines getting picked off by tigers in, in one of the bases he was in. They had claymores set up around it and a tiger stepped on one. Um, and I think last year when I talked to... Uh, John's friend, uh, Keith Cunningham, he was talking to him about snakes. So I was like, what a, just a horrible part of the world to be in. <laughs> just everything is there to kill you. <laughs> like nothing is good. <laughs> oh, thank God we didn't have any tigers down where we were at. <laughs> mm -hmm. We did have snakes though. Do you have any run-ins with anything like that? Oh, sure. Yeah. You, you know, you, you would, uh, but we never had anybody got bit or anything like that. Uh, uh, we have no idea what the hell kind of snakes they were. They had some pretty weird colors going on. The one snake that actually kind of bothered me was the sea snakes. They would get confused and they would come in on the tide. 20 miles inland, you'd see sea snakes. Hmm. And the visibility would be so bad in that Mekong River that they would swim with their head above the water. Oh. And uh, swim kind of like a buck nest or something. <laughs> they were damn big fish. We had one try to get on our on our Navy boat that was giving us a ride. He wanted to get on our boat. <laughs> we didn't want him on there. But, uh, he just must have been a 12-footer. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about um, some of the deployments and then maybe we get into your story, uh, the one that you had featured on a number of different shows uh and you talked about on a couple of podcasts as well uh so can you tell us about some of the deployments that you were on well deployment that was my deployment was vietnam hmm. that's uh but as far as uh, my employment uh you know there uh it was a variety of things uh while i was with my infantry unit uh, like i said we was we really were hunting you down is what it amounted to and we might do, in fact, I, I remember counting. We, we had right around a, a 11 uh, helicopter insertions in one friggin' day. 
Wow. And uh, you'd just go into the wood line. You didn't see any sign of the enemy. Nobody shot at you. Get back on the helicopters, and and you're going to stay out until you find the find uh, some action. Um. So you know that was always a little frustrating, you know. But uh, we had plenty of air assets, and then of course we had the Navy. Uh, so they would insert us early in the morning when they didn't want. You know, they didn't want to make mass insertions at night, so so the Na- we'd use the Navy boats to take us up the rivers. And then the rest of the day, we'd use the helicopters to uh, disperse us. But uh, as a sniper, uh, that ho- was a whole different deal, of course. So now, before uh, before you went to sniper school, you... You you got out of the RTO business. You didn't want to be a radio telephone operator anymore. You volunteered to carry the uh, the M seventy nine as a as a grenadier. Roger. Oh, so what what prompted that? Well, I didn't want the M seventy nine either. <laughs> no, I, I, had I had an understanding as squad leader. I I told him I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to be a little freer. I wanted to be able to move faster. I wanted to be more like a, I wanted to be a rifleman, you know? Right. And uh, the problem with, with the way we use grenadiers is we use them as slack. So usually the first three people would be the point man, a grenadier, and then a machine gun. So for the listeners, slack is like the next man in line in the formation. Correct. Yeah. But you're learning to, to be a point man at the same time. You're following that guy. One of the advantages of having a grenadier up close like that was when he fired his HE round at the enemy, it gave those behind a better idea of where the enemy is at. Um, but it also is effective uh, a weapon, especially psychologically. Anyhow, so I... I, I I'm packing all these damn shells around. It was worse than the radio, to be honest with you. Right. But an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, function. And then after that, they they put me on point, and um, I really went from point to squad leader, squad leader to platoon sergeant. Wow. Platoon sergeant to acting platoon leader. So um, it didn't take long. Just really due to attrition. You're going to move up, and then um, I I always liked in your book how you referred to your your job as point man as the human mind detector. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much the right thing. <laughs> we got we lost a lot of guys due to booby traps, and uh, so from what I remember, um, from going from RTO to grenadier to point man, that was like all within your first three months in Vietnam. Exactly. Yeah, it was early on. And then we, I had, when I was made squad leader, it was by vote of the men. Wow. Which surprised me. That's not how the army does it. So I, and here I am a squad leader, still wearing PFC stripes, and I have a sergeant underneath me. Mm-hmm. So this is kind, of, kind of a weird deal at first, but. Uh, I don't bit. think I even wore E4 stripes. I went from E3 to E5 pretty much in one big jump. But um, So, you know, now it was only a matter of time. My, my squad leader moved up to 
platoon, platoon sergeant, and then you know one thing led to another, and through attrition, once again, here I am. I'm a, then I'm a platoon sergeant. So. Wow. So from there, uh, what did you end up? Uh, kind of, can you tell us about some of the stuff you got into, and and maybe even some of the people that were with you? Uh, anybody that kind of stood out or is memorable from this time? Oh, we had plenty of people that stood out, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. both good and bad, <laughs> but uh, mostly good. I uh, I was very fortunate in following a man by the name of Larry Reed. He was a, a Texan, very uh, slow and deliberate in his manners, but one true hero. He he uh, he led by example. And he believed that if you got him, if you got the edge on the enemy, you charged him full bore, run him down like a dog. And uh, so, you know, I, I think that benefited me to some extent. Um, Larry, in fact, if you read my book, was the guy that stayed down in the bottom hole of the the um, USS Westchester when they blew that up on us. He was the one that stayed down there and. and Helped get getting men out. In fact, he earned the uh, soldier's medal, which is the highest non-combat uh, medal you can earn. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, yeah, you learn from each one of them. Uh, you have good lieutenants, bad lieutenants. Um, but overall, the platoon sergeants pretty much ran the platoon. Um, platoon leaders. You know, it would take a while for them to grow into their position. Most of them haven't seen any combat either, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but great people, great friends. I still go to my reunion. We have a great bunch of guys that show up every other year. So. Did you have many people with you that had any kind of combat experience in general? Like even in Korea would be a little ways back, but maybe somebody... Uh, from that time period? By the time I got to Vietnam, these guys were seasoned troops mm-hmm. that I was working with. We had guys that, that was my first mission. It was some guys that was their last mission. Yeah. Um, so we had, you know, the new guy was really the exception. Uh, unlike the poor bastards that... Uh, went over as an entire company and not, not one of them knew what the hell they were doing. Those were the, those were the guys I felt sorry for. Mm. For yourself, um, can you kind of tell us about uh, your, your function there? Uh, you're saying you're, you guys are kind of like the ones going out and picking the fight, like you're going out and hunting for the enemy. Uh, is that, was that the entire time you were over there? Or did that function ever change for you? No, it never changed. I mean, after all, that's your job. You're an infantryman. You're not a, a cook or a truck driver. Mm-hmm. Your job is to go kick the doors in, kick the doors in, and call names. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. They gave us plenty of assets to do exactly that. So, uh, uh, you know, it's frustrating at times. You know, you'd get worn out, um, and sometimes your morale would really be low after a few of you got killed. Mm-hmm. But um, we always found a way to rally, and uh, it always seemed like my battalion commander had a little bit of an idea when we might need a a day break or you know a, 
Um, we had one way. One way that we had for breaks is we had artillery that was on pontoons, and these pontoons would be drug around by navy boats close to where the infantrymen were working, and within the range of the of the uh, gun, which would be 105. But mainly, we would always put them on these small islands within the river system. So we would go in and we would uh, uh, clear the island and uh, make sure it was safe. And then here would come the artillery people, blah, blah. And we'd set up a kind of a semicircle defense. But at that point, you know, we were really relaxed and uh, felt pretty safe. You know, we even were allowed to get, you know, get some beer sent to us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. It was all good. It might even get some lurp rations, which were always a, a nice change from sea rations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for the listeners, the, yeah, the lurp rations were, they were the first freeze-dried rations. So instead of the, the sea rations that came in cans, these were like freeze-dried in plastic bags, and you would uh, just add water, you know, let it soak in for a while, and basically it would, it would reconstitute. Um, they. Some of them were actually pretty good. Yeah, they were. <laughs> I used to fight for spaghetti. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we uh-huh. couldn't really eat. <laughs> we couldn't. Uh, we couldn't keep down solid food down in the field. Um, so you, you, you never ate a solid meal either. What? <laughs> so your your daily rations your daily rations would be like peaches, pound cakes, and crackers. Um, but you you couldn't eat like a spaghetti or a meatloaf or a ham and lima beans or what the hell ever it was. You, you couldn't keep it down. Why is that, though? Like, are you just too dehydrated or are you too too on the go? Or Oh, just too damn hot out and, and you're working your rear off. You know, uh, just, mm-hmm. just the exertion. You, yeah. you, I would go through an entire mission three, four days without ever urinating. Yeah. You might wake up in the morning feeling your bladder feeling a little full. By noon, it it wasn't full any longer. It had, somehow or other, your body had reabsorbed that that moisture. <laughs> well, what what was your rate of, uh, I guess, insertions or whatever you might call it? Like, what? How often are you dropping into the front lines? Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, as many. As many as close to a dozen times a day. Uh, I think we probably average six insertions a day, something like that. And that's sustained over the whole time? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, wow. there would be days when you stay in one area, you know, you just walk all day long, for example. But uh, a lot of it was uh, just uh, being dropped off and then uh, securing an LZ for the choppers to come in again and and off you go to find something else. If there wasn't anybody to fight, there's no sense of staying there. Mm-hmm. At least that was the in the eyes of our general, anyhow. What? Uh, well, maybe we'll get into uh, your story about that's been kind of been featured on some of the shows and and you, you've talked about it on other podcasts. Well, before we um so. How to uh, if you could just go over how did you how did you wind up so you're you're the platoon sergeant how did you or acting as the platoon sergeant how did you wind up going to sniper school? Yeah, I just saw a flyer one day, uh, a flyer on the bulletin board 
you know, looking for uh, looking for sniper, you know, people to volunteer for sniper school. And uh, I, I I went to my company commander, and uh, and you know, he he was under the impression that I'd go away for training and then I'd come back to the same unit, you know. Huh? So so he was just thinking I was going to go away, get some training, and come back and. It'd be training that would be beneficial to the whole. Right. Uh, he didn't really know how they were going to employ us later, but anyhow, that's how that all happened. So you volunteer for sniper school, and you wind up going there. And if you could just briefly cover, because um, memory serves me correctly, back then it was a three-week course, and um, so what, what what was like the what was the training for that? You know, was it mostly shooting? Did you go into field? Because um, I think to attend a sniper school, you had to have a certain amount of time in country. Um, you know, were they covering, yeah. yeah, were they covering field craft or you know, was it primarily on the on the sniper rifle? Yeah, you know, and, and you're right there. We were all infantrymen and had been for periods of time. Um, so they would take like thirty five of us. They give us uh, like uh, one day of instruction on open sites, and then the very next day they'd have a shoot off, and uh, and they'd just keep the ten best shots, and then send everybody else home. Um, and with the whole purpose of keeping uh, you know those ten people passing, so very frustrating. I was the high scorer with uh, open sites. 300 meters is what we're shooting at. And uh, lo and behold, as, as you well know, John, I ended up uh, flunking out of sniper school <laughs> the first time. Oh, really? <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I missed, I missed Well, part of the final test was that I, you needed to hit your 900-meter target uh, three out of five times. And uh, I, I hit it two, two out of five. I had, to be honest with you, the windage was, I was holding three and a half silhouettes off to the right. Oh. That's, you know, fairly decent wind. That, um, but uh, anyhow, that's how that went down. I, and it wasn't until later that I got the opportunity to go back through it. But in the sniper training itself, uh, we pretty much just dealt with marksmanship and and the reason was they felt like we already understood camouflage. Right. We already understood how to call in artillery, even though we would go over that. You know, we had an afternoon of blowing a bunch of stuff up outside the perimeter uh, just for the fun of it. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I uh, was pretty impressed with their understanding of who we were and what we were capable of. So. Uh, it was pretty much just making us better shots and uh, and understanding, you know, the workings of the starlight scope and yeah. and the uh, daytime art scope, those types of things. And we'd have night classes every every night. We'd have a class of some sort. Yeah, I I, I think for what they had to work with, they did a great job. These guys were actually all members of the. Army marksmanship unit, and they were the ones tasked with writing the very first uh, 
a sniper school program and instructing it. So, uh, yeah. So you were issued the M21 rifle with uh, with the art scope. Correct, and the silent, and the starlight scope. Yeah. Right. And for the listeners, the M21 was um, it was a national match accurized M14 rifle. Basically, the action was uh, uh, glassed into the glassed into the stock. Uh, there was some machining work on it, and the art scope is the really fascinating part. Uh, just real briefly, um, one of the reasons why the the sniper school could be as short as it was, it was uh, art stood for um, automatic ranging telescope, and picture if you will, it was a three by nine variable scope. So you turn you you turn the back of it just like a regular scope, and it would go from three power to nine power. And inside, on the reticle, there were a couple of uh, tick marks or stadia lines. And basically, they represented 30 inches, which was from supposed to be from the top of the, he- top of the head to the uh, belt line of a target. And there was a, there was a cam. Uh, the, basically, the Limited Warfare Laboratory, in inventing this, they'd... Uh, there was a cam that they added to the scope. So when you change the power, the target gets bigger and smaller to fit inside those lines. And then the, the cam at the back would like raise and lower the, the sc- it would tilt the scope up and down to adjust mm. for the trajectory. So you would, you were taught that you see somebody downrange, you have no idea how far away they are. You turn the scope until he fits inside the tick marks on the reticle and then your scope is automatically set ballistically to uh hit this guy when you when you shoot at him so basically the only thing you had to worry about was the windage hmm. so that was uh, that was army sniping in in 1969 yeah that's correct that's pretty ingenious though i mean yeah it really was oh just uh, just, just in the interest of Full disclosure, we've mentioned uh, Ed's book a number of times. Um, just so everybody in the audience knows, when Ed was writing the book, I was helping him with um, some of the research on it. So if you do get his book, and I recommend you do, you are going to find my name credited in there for uh, some of the stuff that I was able to dig up for him. So That's, cor- that's correct, yeah. Yeah, I, I was... I. I was really lucky writing that book. I never wrote that book for it to be a book, so it was kind of a strange. Yeah, the Starlight Scope. Even though they're common today, this was like a this was like a secret item back in Vietnam. And as you know, just like any kind of image intensifier, it it amplified the uh, the available light mm-hmm. uh, thousands of times. But this was a this was like a, a first generation. Um, there's a first generation night vision device and you know you can buy like fourth generation on amazon i believe but um yeah just it and it 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 plays an important part in its story later on but the thing is it's like this is definitely 1960s technology it was a four power scope um it uh it weighed about six pounds and in 2023 dollars uh Back then, it, it cost the equivalent of eight thousand six hundred and seventy-three dollars. Holy! Oh, so, 
Yeah, so you can contrast that with, you know, and, you know, uh, all you got to do is just look up, uh, uh, you know, uh, a night vision scope on Amazon or Cabela's or something like that to, just to see how far things have come. Yeah, it, it truly was. Yeah, we were instructed uh, that if we had to lose, leave our starlight scope to uh, destroy it. Uh, they, they did not want that in the enemy's hands at all. Yeah, and I think if people, uh, I'll post some links after we post this podcast, and people can see the video. Uh, I think I watched it on military.com. They had uh, your story on there, and there's a whole explanation on the scope. It kind of gives you an idea of what it looks like maybe when you're looking through it, how it amplifies the light, and and just how how it helped uh, in your situation. So. Maybe it's a good place we'll kind of jump into that story. The the only thing, uh, maybe if you could add to it though, is they nowhere could I find where exactly in your your time in Vietnam uh, that this occurred. Like if it was at the beginning or the end or in the middle somewhere, you could kind of start there and then just kind of uh, tell us about uh, this night. April, yeah, April third, nineteen sixty nine. Yeah. So you're the historian. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, just by the date alone, you, you know, I was I was there in the fall of '68, so mm-hmm. it, it was I'd been there a while. But um, at any rate, I uh, yeah, it, oh, it's kind of a convoluted story because there's different things that happen. I wasn't. A full-time sniper then, but I had a sniper rifle that the uh, sniper school gave me. And I was on a night mission while I was still a platoon sergeant. And uh, the the change of events that occurred that night is very complicated. And at the same time, that's what made the night so, you know, the way it was. But... uh, Anyhow, we're on a on a night mission, uh, and I'm going to be short on this. If you really want to know the real story, you can either go to YouTube or you can go to my book, either one, but yeah. a little, little more complete. But at any rate, uh, so we were tasked with a night mission, came down from battalion, and my uh, uh, company commander normally would have tasked a, a well-seasoned lieutenant to lead it. Uh, this time he decided to do it himself, and uh, Mike was the uh, ex special forces uh, guy. In fact, he he built Lang Bay, um, but uh, he came to me and wanted me to uh, go with him. So I, I had one team, he had another, and uh, and away we went. And somewhere around midnight, we. Uh, um, land in this uh, rice paddy and and uh we ch- it's just one of the nastiest rice paddies i've ever been in I, it was like the mud was an extra six inches deep you know and there's another foot of water so it, you, you were just really pulling up big claws of peanut butter on on your leg every time you took a step um which made for our going a little slow. So we weren't able to completely check this area out that we were, you know, wanting to deal with. Um, and for one reason or 
to another. Just the choppers are running low on fuel. Blah blah. We 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 configured and and uh, got into a wood line and and as we were leaving, uh, one of the guys jumped off and we had to go back to pick him up and and uh, but as we were leaving, uh, we were we came under heavy fire and uh, which is where the one person jumped off and they cobras pretty much unloaded their their wad at, at everything, uh, doing a pretty good job of keeping them off our back. And, and we, we got in the air, and then we realized we had a, a member of the team that was down there still. So uh, going back into it, so the helicopter I was in got shot down. And uh, a pretty vicious roll. It was low altitude, but we, were, we had speed. And... Uh, so it pitched to the right and it, it rolled and threw some people out, threw most all of our weapons out into this deep, muddy, muddy field, ripped the ripped the ammo off the machine guns. And it, so anyhow, uh, so we had lots of people with broken bones, pilot shot, things like that. Uh, my company commander was uh, stuck underneath. I rode back with him instead of with my unit. I shouldn't have done that, to be honest with you. But um, he was stuck underneath the helicopter. So uh, after we got everybody out of, out of it, uh, um, we we put the work rock in the helicopter and we got him out. But I, we were still receiving fire, and uh, you know, so I, I couldn't find a weapon or nothing, and so I jumped on top of the helicopter, uh, trying to get the M60, the door gunner's M60 to work. And, and it, it was, in fact, the, and then I realized it didn't have any ammo. That whole ammo box and belt had been ripped off and thrown out into the rice paddy somewhere. But uh, the, door, the door gunner managed to start throwing up uh, M16s, and, uh, and he finally found my, uh, my sniper scope, or my sniper rifle. Um, so I was alternating between the M16 and the, and the, and the sniper rifle then, uh, uh, dealing with these guys. Uh, I didn't have any 16 rounds, so I would throw it back down. He'd get a magazine from somebody, throw it back up. But, uh, uh, and using my, uh, my night scope, I, I wasn't hitting a damn thing. My stock was busted. Found out later, you know, that my my scope was askew, uh, but I kept on firing at him anyhow, and because I was using that to identify locations, so and then I would fire around and I'd dump off a magazine of M16s at him or whatever. So uh, that went on for a while, and then I finally actually saw a uh, kind of a reflection where my round had hit. Uh, off to the side and below the uh, uh, the person I was shooting at, so that gave me a pretty good idea of where the where my round was going, and and uh, as such, I was able to just use basic Kentucky windage to uh, zero in on them, and then at that point, uh, uh, my sniper rifle became effective, and and that's I think what really turned turned the uh, tide of the battle. But uh, so anyhow, that's kind of how that went down, and. So people come back. We they finally realize, you know, we changed frequencies and everything. Everybody, the mission's over with. The 
Cobras are gone, the colonel's gone, and his helicopter. And it's you know it's just us two guys, us two helicopters with what we had, and so we can't get them all on one helicopter, obviously. But uh, anyhow, Colonel Peterson he came back, and uh, and he came back with uh, the Cobras even that didn't have don't say, they didn't have any rounds left really. But um, so uh, everybody got on the choppers uh, except for me and and um, and Mike. At least I thought that's what the deal was. But we had a couple of the guys hiding behind the down helicopter. But, so at any rate, uh, we finally get Mike out of there, and uh, I'm left alone in the rice paddy <laughs> except for a. Uh, a Vietnamese Tiger Scout. He's he's out for a week. I'm, I'm thinking, God, you know, I'll never get rescued. But so uh, Cobra comes down. And we we jump on the outside of the Cobra, and uh, Cobra takes me to the middle of high heaven. I've no idea where, and tells me to jump off. And I couldn't even see the ground. He's he. I know he's not on the ground. He's hovering. <laughs> Finally, he popped the canopy and told me to get the f off of his helicopter. And so I jumped, which was probably all three or four feet. But by that time, now I can't even walk. I, I'm, 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 I literally can't walk. And uh, uh, the adrenaline had worn off. And so now I hear Vietnamese talking from outside the, of the area. We finally realized, though, that they were Arvins. They were what they had done was drop me off close to an Arvin uh, encampment. And, well, that's basically it. There's a lot more details to it. Uh, you know, like I said, you can go to YouTube or actually you can get the, uh, you can get all the films on my website at, website at edthesniper.com. Yeah. Um, we'll link you right in. I'll be sure to put up the link so people can find that. Uh, I highly recommend it. The, um, and you came out of that with, a uh, bunch of injuries. I think everybody ended up with a, a whole whack load of injuries. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty. It was it beat us up. There's no doubt about it. Uh, yeah, because Captain Perkins. Yeah, Captain Perkins suffered a broken back mm-hmm. and and hip and hip. Yeah, I suffered a broken back. Didn't know up till later, but um, my right gluteus maximus was a hundred percent contused. It hung out like four inches further than the other bun. Oh, really? <laughs> that was part of why I was having a difficult time walking. But, uh, but you know, I had some shrapnel in my jaw and, and the, you know, and the, and the neck, uh, a bullet neck. Uh, so uh, I was pretty lucky. It just took me a while to get back to hobbling around. And uh, I felt pretty good at that point. Well, actually, years later, I found out it broke my neck also. Oh, but, uh, but it took years. Yeah, I finally started losing some feeling in one arm, and they gave me an MRI and realized that uh, my neck had been broken. And hmm. In fact, it had squeezed, my, it had squeezed my, my spinal cord down to less than two millimeters wide and even split it in two. But, at any rate, that's a whole different story. Wow. Well, did you find, um, was that the end 
of your time in Vietnam? Or did you have a long recovery period from that? I had a couple of weeks before I could walk. And uh, so I, when I did, I, I went back to the company area to see the guys. Uh, I had a 90-day profile. I was uh, excused from 90 days of, of, uh, of being with my unit, uh, you know, 90 days of humping in the boonies anyhow. I didn't have to do anything for three months other than just sit back and enjoy an NCO club if I could find one. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, I, they were having problems. Attrition and a couple of guys came to me begging me, hey, Ed, we really need you. We don't, you know, had like two lieutenants. In. So I, I went ahead and started going back out into the field again. Oh, why? Wow. I really don't know. But, um. <laughs> yeah, because it was cause basically it was um, uh, 30, 30 days into his ninety day profile, he uh, he went back. Yeah. He started going back to the bush. Jeez. Yeah. How much longer did you do there? Well, my unit, uh, just the Ninth Infantry Division was asked us the first people to bring home flags. My battalion was chosen to uh, uh, be the first battalion to go back home, take their flags actually back home, uh, which is quite an honor. Uh, so that happened in July of 69. And, uh, but then I, I got bounced around to different battalions. Uh, and the Army really didn't know what the hell to do with me. Uh, they sent some of the snipers up to the 25th Infantry Division. Yeah, using them as instructors. And uh, so at any rate, I ended up uh, pulling the rest of my tour with, with different units. But, but my heart was with the third of the 60th uh, down in the Delta. Well, how much longer is your military career after this? Oh, I, 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 I got out of the Army the day I got home. So oh, okay. They probably didn't want me by then anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> since the you've been retired from that um can you talk a little bit about leaving the army what the transition back to civilian life was like and um it will get into some of the stuff that you you've been up to since you know i'll never forget when that uh jet got high enough altitude outside of Tonsonut that i felt we were safe from what was below. And I, I, it was like winning the lottery. I just, I never felt so wealthy. So it was just an incredible feeling that stayed with me all the way to home. Um, I'm, I'm realizing for the first time I can do anything, be anything. You know, I'm realizing what I'd went through and, and uh, what I could be capable of. Uh, but, uh, that, that was short, unfortunately. Um, you get home and you find out that things have changed. You've changed. They've changed. Um, the whole country had changed, uh, really. Um, it became pretty anti-Vietnam by that. But, uh, so, yeah. Um, it was a little difficult. I tried to go back to college. Um, ended up spending more times in in the bar than I did uh, in the classroom. But, uh, 
a bunch of us Vietnam veterans decided we, we had a Vietnam veterans club. At, both of us had uh, early lunch off there at the school, but uh, we decided that we'd start holding classes at the bar. <laughs> mm-hmm. meetings at the bar <laughs> so uh, that pretty well did it for a few of us uh, yeah it was it was a little frustrating uh, go ahead no, I was just going to ask about the part where you're saying you came back and there was a lot of the anti-war sentiment did you deal with any of that in your own life or is this more just you seeing on the stuff you see on the TV and the news yeah I dealt with a little bit of it I was fortunate enough to be in small town USA that most you know, Walla Walla, Washington, uh, Hamilton, Oregon, that that whole area there was was my my home area. Uh, but still, you know, I had uh, I think I wrote about in the book about this. I was with some buddies and we're going out to chase some skirt, and uh, one of the guys says, "Hey, yeah, don't don't be talking about Vietnam tonight, or we're not going to get laid." And I remember it just shook me. It shook me to the bone of like, what the fuck? You know, excuse my name, cut that out, I guess, can't you? Uh, oh, that's fine. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I just like, what the, what the hell is going on here? You know, hmm. I'm the same old guy. Why, why would they look at me differently? But, uh, so, yeah, I had a few things like that. I had a few people get in my face even. Uh, one, one, I actually wanted to fight over what the hell you think you're doing, you know? You contrast that with the experience of the people at that time, people's fathers and uncles that had come back from World War II, and there were celebratory parades, and there, you know, Hollywood was pumping out movies of, um, you know, the the exploits of uh, the armed forces of World War II, and it can best be summed up by um, the author B. G. Burkett in his book Stolen Valor. And that the Vietnam generation wasn't allowed to have any heroes. Yeah. You know, there were, you know, not all, um, but, you know, a lot of the people that served in combat arms in Vietnam, I mean, they, they wound up being drafted. And then all of a sudden it's like, come back and, you know, some, you know, some window liquor wants to pick a fight with you on, uh, uh, you know, basically it's like, you know, how dare you come back alive from Vietnam, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, but it was, um, uh, you know, it, the one thing I do want to say at this point, and I don't know if Ed wants to get into it, but it's like, uh, you look at, you look at Ken Burns's Vietnam documentary and he, Here's a real good example. I mean, three quarters of it is dealing with the anti-war movement and the Vietnam veterans against the war that were like cheering as uh, the North Vietnamese uh, finally conquered South Vietnam. And, you know, Ed probably wouldn't mention that to anybody, but I'll just say it on his behalf. His story, you know, he was interviewed by Ken Burns. And rather than tell his story, Okay, um, you know, basically, it's like that one. That one wound up on the cutting room floor, and instead, they were talking about, uh, you know, peace marches on Washington, and uh, like I said, Vietnam veterans that were cheering that uh, Ho Chi, you know, that um, uh, you know, the 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 North Vietnamese, um, you know, 
drove their tanks into the uh, South Vietnam capital. Okay, so it was um, it was one of these deals. You know, whatever reasons that Vietnam happened, the grunts that were actually executing the war didn't deserve the reception that they got coming back. That was, you know, that that was just my two cents. Yeah, it it could be a frustrating deal for sure. Uh, uh, you know, and all I all I really want to do is get my uniform off and start looking like a civilian as soon as I could. My father said, uh, "How come you got rid of your uniform?" He says, "I I kept mine on till it, I kept my Marine Corps uniform on until uh, it rotted off." He says it was good for all kinds of uh, dates and uh, and free beers. <laughs> <laughs> That don't work anymore, Dad. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's quite the contrast, right? Um, and yeah, I hear what you're saying there, John. Like it's, yeah, it's just like all the politics come into it, and it's it's not about the people that they sent anymore, and you know some of the narratives change. So all of a sudden, you got a totally different sentiment when people return, and they're over there, kind of un, uh, unaware or oblivious to what's even going on at home. To the full degree. Yeah. I mean, you're, and you're seeing the same thing nowadays, you know, and then shortly after that, then it was a case of, uh, you know, you know, the military wasn't cool anymore. And then all of a sudden it's like, uh, um, well, you know, this happens in the world and 9-11 happens. All of a sudden it's like it was, you know, oh, wow, where you know, where's our military, you know? I mean, uh you know, it's the same thing. You see the same thing with police, with the whole defund the, you know, the the very clever defund the police movement mm-hmm. and uh, everything else. And then all of a sudden, it's like mayors and councilmen start getting uh, carjacked and everything, and they're like, "Geez, where, you know, yep. <laughs> what can we do for you all? Uh, you know, what can we do for the, uh, you know, the uh, police administration?" So, yeah, yeah, I know you're hundred <laughs> percent on point there. But now, so um, so Ed, you got back and you you wrote about your your struggles with PTSD, and um, what you know, what was that like for you? Well, I I, I never really, and of course, we didn't even know it. They didn't even have a name for it. I don't think early on. Right. But uh, the, the really the first time I understood that I was having a a, a real problem uh, dealing with civilian life. Um, I was just, I had some, I was having anxiety attacks, if you will. And, and it just really bothered me. And I, I got, uh, I grabbed a couple other, um, vets and talked to them about it. <clears throat> you know, and basically the downstroke was, well, you, you know, you just gotta live with it. It'll, it'll get easier, da, 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 you know. I actually went down to a recruiter that afternoon and decided I was going back in. Wow. Uh, at least I hang around people that would appreciate me. And uh, anyhow, fortunately, by then I had a had a cavity and, <laughs> and that they would fix. But anyhow, that's how it all went down. But, uh, you know, and you don't really realize how it affects you until you look back on it. I ran through. I ran through women like crazy. I just, you know, uh, I, I was found. I found a, lot, a great deal of solace and and uh, alcohol and women. 
It was, uh, that's all I look forward to every day. Go out and get halfway screwed it up and, and hopefully screwed. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as therapy goes, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's worse, there's worse pr- approaches. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there is. I've been pretty fortunate in a lot of ways. I think my reunions helped a lot. Uh, going back to Vietnam helped. Uh, but uh, I was a lucky guy. I, I go to my reunions and nobody said, you know, Ed, if you would have had us take a left instead of a right, so-and-so would be alive. Or, right. You know, any of that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I didn't have those kind of accidents. I did lose men, of course, but uh, um, pretty lucky there. I, I could keep my head up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've talked to some of the guys in my platoon that would come to the reunions, and I was like, well, why won't you come to the reunion? It's like, well, I, I'm embarrassed. I, I, I wasn't worth a damn. I wasn't a very good soldier, or, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, I kind of feel sorry for those guys. You mentioned going back to Vietnam. What prompted you to do that? Prompted me to do what? To go back to Vietnam. Sorry. Yeah, you met. You mentioned that you oh. went back to Vietnam. Oh, what was it? in '94? Correct. Yeah, '94. I didn't want to go back. To be very honest with you, my platoon leader, uh, one of them, decided he was going back, and that I was going with him. He could go back without his platoon sergeant. Was his statement. I just really thought he was screwing with me till I got the <clears throat> till I got the airline tickets in the mail. Wow! <laughs> I'm thinking of all kinds of. I didn't sleep for days. Now all kinds of things are going through my mind. So I I just thought I'd just gonna tell him all I was a medic. <laughs> 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 but at any rate, it, it turned out being a a life changing thing for me. Uh, um, back then. Uh, you couldn't even get a visa from the United States. We had to go to Mexico or Canada to get visas. But, uh, so anytime you tr- went anywhere, you had to deal with the military. And uh, just getting there, we had to sit down with the military, including a general. And uh, then going down into the Delta, uh, before we could cross the First River, uh, we had to deal with a four or five, well, two colonels. <laughs> and then to get across the, then we finally get across the way into our old neighborhood. And, and uh, lo and behold, a, a general's there to me, this General V. And uh, but, uh, it was a little difficult at first, but uh, finding out that they, Treated as the men as well as they they do uh, was a big surprise to me. Uh, and I actually asked the general one. I, I said, oh, oh, "Why? Why is it you guys treat us so well now?" <laughs> and he goes, "Well, you know, he says we thought great things of you people. You know, you went out of your way to uh, not kill women and children." Um, as opposed to everything, you know, what they've been through before. You know, so we don't hate you. What we hate is your government. <laughs> mm. And I got to think, well, times I hated it too. So. <laughs> you say uh, you have a video 
yeah. kind of the a little clip of the trip that I want to say it was like through oh no it might have been about ten minutes that I found and just some of the stuff the general said to you pretty it's pretty short yeah yeah um I, I'd recommend people watch that when we went back we went to a, a battle site and I was, and I well I, I didn't care to go over that that's where I lost my best friend. Um, so I'm playing with the children, teaching them stupid little magic tricks and whatever. I, you know, you can't with it. So as we got ready to leave on our boat, um, here's all these children running down the side of the river, you know, waving at me. So I'm sitting there at the bow of the boat with uh, Sergeant Ed Zeke, who was with me. And General V comes up, puts his hand on my uh, leg as as they do uh, in a non-gay way. But, uh, he uh, he said, you know, I've been wanting to tell Americans this for a very long time. Did you know I fought since I was a child? And, uh, you know, we had the Japanese and the this and that. He says, I, I've been in war all my life. But he says, uh, you Americans are the best. I know for a fact you went out of your way to save women and children at your own expense. And, uh, you know, that's, that was just, you know, I just wanted to fucking grab Jane Fonda and John Kerry and, you know, put them there with me. But, uh, any rate, uh, we ended up being pretty good friends. I, I would supply him with fishing gear for the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that statement alone, that statement alone uh, made me feel good. So, yeah, I'm sure that went a long way towards healing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of different. Um, I asked a soldier one time, I said, how come you guys, uh, I have a lot of them, how come you guys like us so long? But you guys are the only ones that understand, he says. He says, the kids today, he's talking about the kids in Vietnam, they don't understand. No, they're too young. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> and maybe some, uh, I guess, on some other good news, uh, you were also inducted to the Army Sniper Hall of Fame. Can you talk about that, that process? Yeah, what an honor. It kind of took me by surprise. Uh, the Army kind of got a hold of me a few years back, and I, I spoke at a international sniper competition and a few things like that. Got to know a few of those guys. And then um, through americansnipers.org, uh, we supplied active duty snipers with, with uh, gear. And so I started dealing with, directly with the sniper school as far as vetting the people that we were supporting. And uh, But at any rate, uh, they gave me a call one day and they said, hey, we're we're going to uh, name the uh, sniper classroom after you. Oh, nice. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, like, like there's people out there, I would think, that deserve it more. And, and especially when it comes to numbers, because uh, I, I don't have the high numbers, but excuse me. Anyhow, um, so you get there in Fort Panning, and, and it's quite the hoopla. The general's there with all of his colonels. And, and it's the first day of the International Sniper Comp, so all the the foreigners 
<laughs> they all got to enjoy that stuff. So we go over to the sniper school and we do a little ribbon cutting and, and I go inside and here's a whole bunch of my shit. Oh, my, there's my uniform and you know different pictures in the corner of this, the corner of that room. And, and that's when they said, and by the way, you're the first inductee into the sniper hall of fame. So, wow. Um, yeah. What a, what a, what a beautiful surprise. Huh? And well-deserved. No matter what you might say, Ed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. I hope to see a lot more people here shortly. So. I don't like being the only one in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think there'll be any shortage of conflict for people to be involved in, that's for sure. <laughs> but you said they had your uniform, and did they have a did they have your rifle or any part of it? No, they they have a, they. They had another M14, though. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I, I donated my uniform to them. I, I knew that that they wanted, you know, some stuff, and I thought it'd be they they just put it up on the wall of the Eddie Sniper classroom, you know, uh, not realizing what they're really truly going to do with it. Wow, but uh, nice little. Uh, in fact, I, I actually on my website, I. Uh, you can go to Hall of Fame, and I, there's some pictures there that describe it a whole lot better than I can. Yeah, but yeah, they had they had some old unit, uh, old unit patches, and, you know, stuff like that. It it actually was it actually took up about ten feet of the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty crazy. Maybe one other thing I want to make sure we uh, get in here, just we kind of come up to the end of our time. I wanted to ask about the Medal of Honor uh, recommendation for you. So, because I saw on your website that you had said you were hoping people would uh, pull their recommendation just because it's causing some stress. Uh, And I'm totally ignorant to the whole process, but... I see that you have to be recommended. It has to be supported further through the political side of things. Can you talk a bit about that process and then why or what issues it's causing for people? Well, the process, I'm not, I, and first of all, you got to recognize I stayed far away from it as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. What happened was years later, uh, Mike um, realized I hadn't been honored. And, but it's still pre-computer era. He didn't know how to find anybody. So in his mind, it takes two people for a Medal of Honor, and it takes two people for a Distinguished Service Cross. So he put me in for a uh, Silver Star. Well, the Army, and thinking that the Army would investigate that and, you know, find witness, whatever, investigate it, and they would do the right thing by me. Well, instead, the award board just they downgraded it to a bronze star and and, and uh, sent it to my house uh, for it set for a couple of days in the rain. But anyhow, uh, uh, so that didn't happen from that angle. So then he then once we found people and had and could you know attain statements and so forth. And I shouldn't say we. Once Mike Perkins, um, then 
he was able to put together a package and, and present it as a Medal of Honor. Okay. That started the fight. Then, the, you know, then another, then one of the congressmen took it on and they really didn't do anything. And then the other congressman took it on. They didn't do anything. Uh, they didn't really care. Then my colonel, he took it on. And then about the time he gets ready to pass away, uh, the army decided, or the congressman decided that he had one guy that wanted to take that on. Well, he got voted out right after that. Oh. <laughs> you know, one mess after another. So I, I, I get a hold of Mike and I said, Mike, I, you know, let's just knock this off. Let's just, let's just end it. You know, he says, no, he says, I'm retired. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm pissed off now as much or more than I ever was. <laughs> But uh, the biggest problem the Army has had isn't with the testimony, it's with the procedure. So they came up with this new ruling that you could that you can only be upgraded uh, once from any event. So mm. what happened was the Army gave, everybody was on a helicopter wreck, got an Army accommodation medal just for being there, volunteering, and getting wrecked up, okay? So that's one award. So then the next award is a Bronze Star, uh, the one downgrade from the silver. Uh, so now I've, so now the Army's saying, well, sorry, we can't go forward because he's already been upgraded once. So that's been the fight, you know? And it's a fight that has been won by others. That uh, Anyhow, that's what her mic's, knocking his head against this, this, uh, that kind of crap. Mm-hmm. Well, I like uh, at least where he's coming from because he says he's retired. He's got all the time now. So <laughs> keep fighting the fight. He, he's a retired, he's a retired pissed off special forces guy. So I, I, I wouldn't want to stand in his way myself. <laughs> <laughs> he was a great guy. He was a great leader. Him and I went out on a couple night missions together. <laughs> Guys are going like, what the hell? We got a company commander that wants to go out and crawl around in the middle of the night. You know, <laughs> he was a pretty good guy. And as I mentioned earlier, I I think I did. Uh, he, he was he built Lang Bay. He was tasked with uh, building up the special forces uh, encampment Lang Bay up by Asan. Oh, very nice. So he'd been around. My colonel had been around. So. Here I got two guys that have had five tours of Vietnam together, both special forces, and their word ain't shit. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Because because of the the because there's already been one one upgrade, you know. Right. Whatever. Anyway, I, I'm tired of it, to be honest with you. Yeah. I uh, I feel as though I feel as though I've been honored way beyond already. By, by my men and, and by my uh, Mike and, and others. So, well, and you get to go out and tell your story. So, I mean, that's that's a blessing in it of itself, right? Yeah. Oh, he also he also gets a lot of free stuff too. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> when it, when it's when it's yeah, just just so you know, I mean, when his story, you know, when his, when his story first came out, it's like you know, Ed and I were talking and. It was just amazing all the stuff where gun manufacturers are like, 
oh, please, Dad, take this rifle. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, here, try bullets and all this stuff. <laughs> I'm like, God damn it, Ed. <laughs> I'm wondering if, um, just because we're right at the end of our time, can you tell us, uh, maybe both of you, tell us how you guys met? Yeah, John and I met at a, a sniper seminar up in uh, Wisconsin, I believe. It was Janesville, is that correct? Yes, yes, Janesville, Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Mike Rankus was the organizer, and or no, Paul Rankus. Paul Rankus was the organizer, yeah. and um, yeah. I was speaking, and um, uh, Ed was speaking, and then that's the that's the first time that that's the first time I met him, and it's like we we hit it off, and um, uh, we we got to talking, and he said he was working on this book, and um, I would uh, you know I would I would be glad to you know, help him with, you know, photos and stuff like that. Yeah. And, um, and it, it's kind of funny because the thing is, it's like when I was, when I was, when I was helping out with Mekong mud dogs and, you know, I'm, you know, uh, digging up this stuff on army sniper training in, in Vietnam, my son, Jason at the time was like, um, how come, you know, this guy's uh, this guy's up for the Medal of Honor as a sniper. It's like you know what you know. What does he need you for? And that's why I said, well, <laughs> his his career in the army was like two years. I said I've I've been doing this for like you know I've been a sniper instructor for like forty years. So you know I I help out wherever I can. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I mean I I I dug up photos, you know, dug up photos for the book and and stuff like that, and I proofread it, and it's like hopefully we'll be able to. Uh, put the band back together for a um an updated edition of the book uh we we already started talking about that oh very cool the book actually was by accident i had a hollywood writer want my story they kept on bugging me and bugging me and, and finally he says well i'll get your story from from the guys you know, that you served with and i got to thinking well i was already in five books already in five different magazines and every time I was written about. They got something wrong. Yeah, but I thought I'm not taking. I'm not taking any chances here. I'm going to write my story down the way it really happened. Well, in doing so, I recruited four or five guys from my unit, uh, including the snipers and John, uh, to get it done. And uh, and then I was talking to my one buddy. I said, "Well, you know, I'm going to have to change some stuff. I don't. I I don't need to be." Uh, Having my mother read about my time in a whorehouse, <laughs> 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 and these guys went sideways on me, like, "Don't you dare change a thing." Oh. That's just the way it was, you know. <laughs> you know. And and that therein lies, I think, the reason for its success is I just, mm -hmm. I, 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 I just, I, I got tired of hiding things, and so I, I couldn't do that. I just had to. I threw all that ideas away, and I just went with the truth. Yeah, it worked out pretty good. Yeah, and the thing, and the thing that struck struck me about it is, it you know, Ed is just so incredibly, you know, and you can hear it in this pod, you know, in this interview. I mean, Ed is just so incredibly modest, but he he's also he's also more honest than most people that are writing their memoirs. And the one that always jumps out at me and I debated bringing it up, but it's in the book. 
one of his motivations for sniper school for going to sniper school was is that hey it, it's a three-week class so it's going to get me out of the bush for three weeks and it still counts as time in country so that's that's three weeks that i'm not going to get shot at or have to uh yeah um you know ha- have to sleep uh, you know have to sleep on the ground good point and that and then yeah and the thing is it's like well yeah that's on it that's that's how soldiers think okay even soldiers that are nominated for nation's highest award for valor mm-hmm. okay and it's like it, it it makes it a very human book and i was you know i i was looking up uh in preparation for this i was looking up some of the review some of the negative reviews on amazon and what a bunch of pinheads, you know. Oh well, you know. They're saying, "Uh oh, don't ever read the the bad comments." Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you know he. Yeah, he was like shirking, it, slacking, and all this other stuff. And it's like, well, you know, you know, sorry, you know, it's like, yeah, that's uh, that spoken like a civilian. Yeah, okay? it's exactly. Like, yeah, you know, but back when everybody else was asleep, he should have put a bandolier of machine gun bullets across his chest and crawl out into the night with a knife in his teeth, you know. And it's like. <laughs> Wars are fought by wars are fought by people and and not cartoon characters, mm. and that is that is one of the best lessons that anybody could learn from this book. But yeah, but all that said, um, between the language and the episodes and the whorehouses and everything, you really a teacher in a high school civics class really doesn't want to put this out as a uh, reading assignment. <laughs> I tell you, one of the highest compliments I received was uh, from a professor. He wrote me a nice little letter, and I wrote him back and uh, thanking him for the kind words, and he says, "Well, obviously, you're not an English professor." <laughs> he comes back, he goes, "Oh, he says, oh yes, I am." He says, "But anybody that can't see through the small errors of punctuation and editing, um, you know, exactly." He says. You know, and that's so that he gave me credit for what I wrote, uh, not for the way it maybe should have been punctuated mm-hmm. or whatever, which is where a lot of people thought I, you know, you know, it just wasn't the best edited book in the world, but you know, you can get through it, no problem. Yeah, well, I'll uh, I'll definitely when I get the episode up, I'll throw up some links, hopefully, some people check it out. Um, and uh, yeah, I want I guess it kind of brings us to the end of the time here. Uh, I want to say thanks to you, Ed, just for obviously the service and putting yourself on the line and I mean going through hell and back. Um, but even all the stuff you do after that, so you put out the book, um, you have some art that you uh, have posted on your website. There's things for people to check out on there. Um, but even just sharing your story, uh, I know it helps other veterans. Even up here in Canada, uh, I get messages from people once they listen to the stories. They say, you know, like, yeah, uh, I'm good to come on there and talk now or or share my story of what's happened. So, sure, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're doing some good stuff and helping people out. So just as long as you know that. Well, I, uh, I have a, I, I love the Canadian Army. I was hitchhiking once from Canada, from Alaska to, to, to Washington. <laughs> And I was in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and uh, along came a 
a, a Canadian uh, a group of uh, they, they were managing that dew line back when they had the, the radar up there. Mm. But anyhow, they gave me they gave me a ride and let me stay in their barracks the night, fed me, and and I was on my way the next day. So it was <laughs> all cool. It's a one big piece of land we're on here, so we're all friends here. Yes, sir. So yeah, no, thank yeah. you for for coming on the show, and um, I'll get this up here just before Remembrance Day. Um, but yeah, if you can hang on the line for two seconds, I'll say bye offline. Um, and thanks to you, John, for hosting all these. Oh, thank you, thank you for asking me. I mean, this has uh, been a pleasure and an honor. <laughs>